funnily enough, I um I went back through to have a watch through what we talked about last time to kind of get a, a think about what did we chat about last time, and we pretty much recorded that one almost a year, exactly a year ago. I think it was like maybe a week before that we caught up last time and had a, a good chat. Yeah, I can't. I knew we did something. I just couldn't remember when it was. Um, yeah. Yeah, I can't even remember. Yeah, when I was going back through. <laughs> I think, to be fair, for the first hour, I think we just talked about cricket. Just anything and everything about yeah, our own cricket at the time. <laughs> but uh, I thought, given I do kind of want to post something to to chuck up onto like podcast now, even though like I mainly care about having these chats for me because like I love to be able to have these kind of talks with people that know a bit more than me in certain areas and then I can like level myself up. But um, I thought to like open up the conversation, like because you've done the research and then you've looked back in time, like historically, like I was curious, like if you could almost like map out what you've learned and what the others have learned before you to get to like where we are now with the biomechanics of fast bowling and you know what we can sort of agree on with say a a framework or two yeah that's a a very long question um i think (laughs) i love long questions it's just a progression of what you know and it's the same with any yeah i think it's a it's a progression of a what knowledge you need to know um how you can dig in and find out that knowledge in terms of the approaches we have to analyze data etc um and also the access and the willingness of certain um groups of individuals or organizations to want to learn and give you access to them players um Mm. so i think I mean, you've obviously got the technological advances in terms of what we can actually measure. We've gone from drawing pictures or taking a few pictures of horses of my bridge back in the 1800s to now what we've got now and take thousands of images mm. a second. So um, everything advances. And I think a lot of it's progressed with that in terms of what we wanted to know. And I think we started off trying to probably in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, just trying to look at can we learn a little bit more about fast bowling and understand what it is that allows some of these guys to do what they do, which kind of seems supernatural at times. Um, and the more we've dug into that, I think we've realized that there's more to it and there's another layer and another layer. And I think now we're at a point where mm. we kind of understand what optimal technique looks like at a real high elite level. And it's trying to now flip it and go, well, actually what stops a 10 year old doing that? What prevents a 15 year old doing it what's the difference between male and female optimal techniques where do the size and the amphimetrics of strength differences etc like how does that change optimal techniques i think we're very much now at a point of optimal technique looks like run up as fast as the individual can try and maintain that through back foot contact in a nice stable position to probably prevent um, instability in the top half and some of the injuries we know in terms of the lumbar stuff mm. that comes from that and then at front foot contact be ready to a take the load to brace the pelvis and then use that energy to trunk flex forward and delay the bowling arm bowl fast etc but if you can't do that and you can't run up quick enough as some of these elite guys do how do you your technique change is there are ways or avenues that you go down that's optimal for the individual and i think they're the next big questions of the next 10 15 years of 
trying to understand actually. Oh, well, you've come to the right if person. If you can't, I'll just chuck it get into them skills. positions and stuff. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and I think a lot of the time, uh, as we have this parody of the best drills, but actually the best drill is what's best for that individual rather than having this you just one drill or one piece of advice that works for everybody. Um, and I think a lot of the research has been like that in terms of what is best for a group and the group-based research has got obviously its limitations and not everybody can run up quicker and quicker and match what the elite guys do without breaking down. But mm. at the same time, there is probably somewhere in there there's some advice in there that works for you, whether you go one way or the other. If you could, like, uh, I think we're going through a pandemic at the moment of not just COVID, but of people taking research from the last 10 years of run up faster, straighter front legs, etc. Taking them individual pieces of advice, not considering the bigger picture, and then you're seeing lots of stress fractures coming back in, seeing more injuries coming back in because people are just trying to run up as fast as possible without taking into consideration whether they mm. can do it. And some of my applied work with um, elite bowlers is actually running up too fast. You need to slow down because you're not giving your body enough time to actually, A, block that energy and use it or tra or generate mm. any more energy within the action. You're basically just crashing into the floor and trying to hold your upper body in a position to bowl fast. So. Um, yeah, it's interesting that we now flipped back to going, actually, what's the, how do we understand why they're not doing what we want them to do rather than actually what do we want them to do? So, um, But I think, yeah, in terms of the statistical stuff we can now look at and the technology stuff. I mean, if we look at, say, what's theoretically now, you know, and biomechanically understood in research, you know, like, you know, the run-up, straight leg, the trunk flexion, the bowling under leg, like, they're these sort of, wonderfully nice like i mean you can sort of see them as like a nice picture but like you know the movements i find are um are more interesting than they kind of dig into like practically now what what straighter front leg actually makes you bowl faster versus it just looks pretty you know versus you know a run up you might run faster but if you're running mechanics are poor well it sets you up in the later sequences to be poor as well so you might run in faster, but you're essentially setting us up to just like crash harder, so to speak. Or, you know, thinking about truck flexion and, and bowling arm delay and, and even linking that into, say, hip shoulder separation or, you know, separating hips and shoulders so that you don't get yourself too front on too early so that you've got nowhere else to go but into side flexion or, you know, you have to cancer rotate or something like that. Like, I find these questions, you know, super fascinating and, and that's where I've, I've loved my... I guess, you know, my, my role as a coach trying to figure out how I can sort of go through these things. And, you know, that's where you see on social media, like all the best drills to do this, which is so like uncontextual within the whole con whole sequence of the fast bowling action. It's why they're so fucking shit. Not to mention they're not like linked to same individual. So but that's, that's where I probably found out if I improved my running mechanics and I taught them how to relax, I finally allowed them you might say the foundation of quality movement and um, I guess relaxation avoids that you can now optimize your ability to contract your muscles, to get the timing right. Then when I put a few good cues in or like I used the constraints, like I did see that there was um, a much better result. And, um, you know, I did, I did pick up a couple of things that I thought were, you know, best, best cues or, or best things. And I mean, I'm sure we can jump and stuff like that later, but I mean, one thing that I found that worked really well, like, 
I used to give cues with like one kind of limb or one sort of body part. And I often found like that sort of got me into trouble a bit. Like, you know, if I just move the front arm, say during the jump, that like I don't link in the opposite side of the body, say, you know, bring in the right leg. You know, when you're jogging like in normal locomotion, both sides are working in opposition. I often found like I ended up kind of shifting them in the wrong direction. Even though I've got the arm in the right position, I didn't counter that movement in with a movement out to then get myself going straight. So I found like getting guys into a good position at takeoff point in their in their jump was like getting the front arm and the and the knee to kind of move together. I was like, oh, now it's starting to, to work really well. And this was one of the practical ways that I was thinking, like, how can I go about achieving some of these things that you guys have shown us in research to, to come out? Yeah, I think that it's the only way really I can think of, like, explain it, it's a bit like a painting. Like, you don't see, like, these artists just go and slap a load of paint on a load of canvases and suddenly it comes out like a masterpiece that, well, we get these pretty pictures at the end and these positions that you get into because of the work that's gone on before. And in fast bowling, you've obviously got your run up and you've got your gather and back foot contact into front foot contact and beyond. And I think that we're guilty a lot of the time of looking at the end. And we do it naturally because we're looking at ball speed or the outcome or whatever they're trying to do. But actually what happens in that front foot fo contact phase is a consequence of how they arrived there. Um, and that all starts right back at the beginning of the run-up in terms of your running mechanics, um, your change of direction within your run-up, how you get through back foot contact. There's so much that goes on before you actually do the final piece um, that if you get some of that untidy or scruffy or it's not right, then it has a massive or a massive effect on what you're about to do. Um, so I think, yeah, it's a bit like as coaches, like you wouldn't just keep, well, you might as artists keep touching up what you've done and trying to improve it, but you sometimes need to not start again, but go back to under layers underneath and try and work out what's going on and change them, or at least try and draw some lines on before you start painting rough like all over the place. So um, I don't know if that works as a good analogy or not, but we are guilty, I think, of looking at the end rather than or trying to find the end before looking at the start and jumping ahead of ourselves in the fast bowling action. Um, yeah, and I reckon that's probably. And then where... I think some of the things you've talked about in terms of the cues if you think about just bio like biomechanics and physics theoretically like you don't need to get into loads of human movement science and how muscles etc work to a really big le deep level to or even a motor control level to understand or think about the cause and effect of uh, what's going to happen if you move different body parts or one side of the body etc um, and again i think we're guilty of going to too deep a layer on that side and trying to really understand what muscles are doing and tendons are doing and in reality whatever you've got and you can train a little bit for your muscle strength and your tendon stiffness but it's not going to make a huge impact on what you can and can't do as an overall individual mm -hmm. from getting from what you can do to what the elite guys can do you're not going to bridge that gap if you're mild there's a big gap there already so um i think it's that side of it's about actually going back and looking at it from a real basic perspective and go, well, yeah, if they run up too fast and they collapse through back foot contact, the only place that their center of mass, et cetera, can go through front foot contact is continue to go down. So the front leg's going to bend um, to get it into a stronger position to actually stop yourself sitting on the floor. Um, and actually just going back to some of these basic things of thinking about what's actually going on from a 
this is the tools you've got and this is what happens is probably a better place to be in and i think the cues can benefit from that um but without trying but then you've got the flip side in coaching about the pedagogy versus andragogy story of kids versus adults and how do you best like cue with intrinsic or intrinsic and getting too much into the the depths of explaining to the bowlers what's mm. going on and death by analysis and stuff like that. So, yeah. or paralysis by analysis is another one I've heard. So, yeah, that's a good um, it's one of the things why I quite like just throwing the detail over to the coach and going, there you go, it's your job now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think there's, we have to be careful that we don't go too far into all of this analysis. If you, A, you don't understand it, which I think a lot of people see these individual things about let's get the front leg straight or let's delay the bowling arm without actually thinking well you can't do that because you're landing if you do that you're probably going to snap something or so you've got to take the whole picture and the consideration into one thing mm. and i think if you're going to consider it like that then you're probably better off breaking the top half and bottom half down to start with and say actually what's my bottom half doing can i get that right and then working on the top half and if you can run properly that's probably going to do you a massive favor in terms of getting into back foot and front foot contact properly um we know that if you run poorly your pelvis tilts forward and we know if that happens then you're going to probably have that through back foot contact and front foot contact and we know that's linked to stress fractures so yeah i think the next big thing in probably fast bowling development it's already happening at the elite level is actually teaching people how to run properly or looking at running mechanics before you even start looking at the bowling mm. mechanics um, you must have gotten that from me. <laughs> um, now, I was actually going to ask um, now that you're like, you know, no longer say, oh, I don't know if you still are consulting with the ECB, but if you know you are no longer consulting with the ECB, like, are you able to talk about the relationship that you and Shiny had and some of the stuff that you did with, say, you know, that kind of ECB program? Um, yeah, I don't see why not. Um... Yeah, the ECB thing kind of come to an end, like in terms of just the natural course, run its course in terms of I've come to the end of my education and the link with Loughborough and me doing my training, etc., or whatever you want to call it in terms of postdocs, etc. Um, and the door's still open. We're still we're still having a conversation there and how I can help, etc., moving forward. But um, yeah, the relationship with Shiny. Um, mm. To be honest, I was really lucky. I ended up in a position where I was like a nerd coming off a maths degree that went into doing a master's in biomechanics because I didn't want to go to work and then fell into a PhD with probably one of the best forward thinkers of fast bowling that there's been for a long time and suddenly I'm yep. getting trained by this person. <laughs> and I'm sure it wasn't all one way of me gleaning information off a shiny. I've, hopefully I've taught him some things over the years. But um, yeah, it's kind of like, I've always been really curious mm. about fast bowling and I mm. had Ian Pont's fast bi bowling bible when I was a kid. Um, I used to go to watch Essex play, watch Goffey and Napier who he was working with and Stain etc. Um, so I've always been curious around how maths and sport link together just because of my personal skills and abilities in them areas but um, yeah we, we had some really good years on the pace program at Loughborough in terms of trying to work things out, I would say. I think a lot of the time, it wouldn't say it was all trial and error, but we've got 3D motion capture and we're obviously doing the testing of trying to understand how these boulders move and how we can improve them. But also we had the opportunity to put some of these drills through 3D motion capture and see what happened. So 
that's where the individuality started to come in in reality we'd, we'd have some drills to try and lengthen people or get them with straighter legs mm. and um around stuff like with bands or hurdles and we'd get say 10 people in a testing session to do it and we'd find quite split results where mm. it worked for five people and it'd have the opposite horrendous effect on another five um so this is where we started to realize that actually we've got to be prescriptive with some of these drills and actually the best advice that we can probably give now is just generally is try a drill video it see what happens if it doesn't work then try and think of another drill or another situation or cue that might work and help them um and i think now we're very much mm. against getting really heavy with poles and cones etc like in reality if you think about a job as a coach it's to probably have a bigger impact with as minimal effort as possible or like so in so like if you can make a change with a word cue that mm. that's a lot easier than putting in 50 cones and then getting them to do it and then when you start taking them cones out they revert back again so you want to try and make these changes with as least yeah. impact as possible because then it's easier for it to stick mm. and i think we learn quite a lot on the pace program around what works what doesn't work we had the chance to mess around with s and c practices in terms of um putting things into practice in the gym but i think also another part of it which is really beneficial is you get to talk to lots of different people within the county game you get to talk to different coaches different s and c's etc um, and even different players and what they're doing their ideas etc so you end up having this education of the game in effect and um, you kind of become a bit of a student of the game and even now I look at scorecards virtually weekly and go oh I'd probably mm. go through every scorecard on the county circuit and even when Australia the Sheffield Shields on going what's going on with the players that I've had like a conversation with etc so um, to see how they're getting on and what's working and what might not be working and there's even players that I keep an eye on now in terms of play cricket look at the video and I'll drop a message to a coach that um, say look have you seen this like they're reverted back to this etc um, it's an ongoing education because you're always learning you're always trying to do something so having you've got if you're trying to coach you need to look at the outcome and work out whether it's worked or not and that goes into matches as well like it's all right doing it in the confined or safe space of mm. training and it works and then you don't you stop and then the next thing you know is they're injured or they're going for a loss of form because and then you look at the video six months later and you go well yeah well, you're not doing what we did in the training or it's like in mm. a way whose responsibility is that to have a look at it and make sure it's still they're doing what you wanted them to do so um i wouldn't say that that's a great introspective question yeah and i think it's really difficult because like a really good introspective question like really really good like i like so for me it's, i kind of have a personal pride of that i've worked with that player so if they get injured after they've worked with me it doesn't look good on my <laughs> reputation so in a way i do it out of that kind of thing but actually we're all in the game i suppose to try and <laughs> help these people achieve what they can achieve mm. so um if you've got that little piece of knowledge and i'm not saying that everybody should go on twitter on facebook and um dig out people with bowling actions because that would be like a horrendous and b like no one would ever know whether they were coming or going but you'll probably notice that i hardly ever comment on any bowlers actions on Twitter yeah. because i don't think it's an appropriate thing to do really because i understand why some people do it um 
from an educational point of view and I think that's fine yeah. if you've got an under a reputation within the game where you're respected but like in reality I could work with some of these players and the last thing I want them to do is go onto Twitter and go well you actually said all of this about me um so yeah I'd very rarely do it because well, I don't think I've ever done it to be honest just because yeah. I don't think it's appropriate <laughs> for somebody playing in a game like you wouldn't you wouldn't want to you're an Olympic athlete mm. and you find out the day of your competition that you if you did a technical change you might jump 10 centimeters further after you've put all the prep in for that Olympic game so um players don't need to be reading it during games or during competitions and um mm. so yeah there's a little bit of both sides but I do think that once I've worked with a player and I've got a trust of a coach then I do feel that I've got that respect to be able to drop a message to the coach and just say something. But again, there's a probably a really key point there that I don't message the player. But yeah, so going back to the shiny thing, like, mm. yeah, I was curious because um, you did a bit of work with Matty Mason. And I was wondering if you could open up on some of the stuff with Greeny and the, oh, now that's may, maybe that for the next one, but or the next like after, after you finish off the shiny. But um, now I was curious if you talked through some of the stuff you did with Cam Green and some of the stuff you did with um, Ty as well. Yeah, yeah, so I wasn't, no, I don't think I really had. So the shiny stuff, I think, just finishing that off was, yeah, it's just brilliant, really, to be engaged with somebody. And I learned a lot of the don'ts rather than the do's. And some of them things I've talked about in terms of don't get too heavily involved with the player. Don't, as we talked about in the first question, don't take these individual things and say, right, that's the first, the only thing to focus on. You've got to take the whole picture. Shiny was really keen on making sure that the information that we found within the research was interpreted as a whole across the whole bowling action rather than the headline bowl with a straight leg and you'll bowl 100 miles an hour or delay your bowling arm like you've got to be really careful with this prescriptive advice that it's got to be mm. taken into consideration within the whole bowling action and within that then becomes like the duty of care of how you share that knowledge safely um context yeah and what levels does that come in on coach education you don't you don't want your dads then that are working with young children within bowling actions that don't really understand how the links together to suddenly get really technical and go, actually, you need to have a really straight front leg now at 10 years old because they're probably not strong enough to maintain that and it's probably going to end up hurting them. Um, so at what level does this come in? But And that gets really difficult because some of your level three, level four coaches are only working with academies and if they don't get some of that advice younger than they come in, they don't ever get an academy even though they might have the potential. So it is a really difficult <laughs> mixture of trying to get everything in the right order. But mm. I think now with social media, it's really keen to make sure that these results are the way to bowl, but not everybody can attain them and then mm. trying to understand what we do going backwards. Um, so, yeah, and then on that, everything you see on social media is effectively opinion. So again, you've got to take that into consideration as well. And, try and dig out the truth from the I wouldn't yeah. call it fake news but people's opinions of what they do and everybody does things differently and everybody has different results and um, you see that within the research like we're getting now to a point where there's quite a lot of fast bowling research mm. across amateurs club cricketers academy cricketers county cricketers international cricketers any female cricketers male cricketers and you find they're all slightly different results, a because of the statistical processing, but also because they've all got different characteristics, whether that's strength or anthropometrics or age or gender, etc. Um, and you see the massive individuality. But if you pick up one paper or see somebody's work on social media and say this is the way to do it, 
based on this piece of research without taking into consideration the whole pool of research then again you can kind of come up with misleading like um understanding or interpretation of it so um i think yeah we just have to be careful with how we address this and spread the knowledge um and then yeah so kind of like, le i learned a lot at loughborough um, and hopefully i share some of that and some of the values and principles that i have probably come out of shiny as well and the loughborough what happened with the people i worked at loughborough as well in terms of mark king and fred eden etc and the research side of trying making sure that actually everything you're putting in the academic domain is um honest thorough honorable etc in terms of you're not just trying to put publications out to get publications it actually adds to the mm. area and the knowledge within that as well um and then i think yeah finally just trying mm. to help is probably a key value as well like if you can help then it's a bit selfish to keep all the knowledge to yourself um so i'm quite open with my time a lot of the, i think or i hope to be i hope people interpret it that way no definitely <laughs> um, and then yeah so going on to the mace thing probably comes from that being uh, that's what I, I mean so yeah going on to yeah. the mace thing it's probably comes from being open with my time i've had quite a lot of conversations with mace in the past he would come on the pace program as one of the invited coaches and he was at leicestershire and obviously close to home from where i live at, in the uk um and then he went he had some problems mm. and it wasn't he went it didn't really start with Cambrian from memory um it kind of started from a holistic point of view of how fast bowlers were being coached in australia and what you were seeing through the academy and the young bowlers at western australia in terms of them years that were spent in terms of mm. believing that mixed actions were bad and side on front on etc were linked to stress fractures and trying to coach young quicks out of these positions um and again, I'm not going to sit here and say the research was wrong. It was probably just a consequence of the group of boulders that were had in the research and the findings that were found led to a path that may not now be what we believe. Um, but so, but I think what probably happened was that we ended up, well, they ended up coaching boulders out of their natural movement patterns and probably put them in an even more susceptible position to be unstable at back foot contact and front foot contact and then probably mm. exacerbated um these parameters that we know that are linked to stress fractures so um it started off of what can we actually do do we believe that that's the right way to go because he had a lot of bowlers i think within the pathway that he believed had been coached out of having mixed actions um and a lot of the things he wanted to do i think were kind of like can we take them back to a little bit more natural positions of what they're used to doing and what they're comfortable doing so it started about that and then we started talking about getting into safe mm. positions for young players and i think that's if you listen or people have seen what mace talks about in terms of his podcasts and what he's talked about with other people that that's what his kind of key mantra is at the moment make them safe before you work on pace um and i don't know which one of us kind of uses his motto but i think yeah safe safe before pace is probably a good way like of going that. at the moment um especially in your junior players so you can always kind of work on little attributes that can add pace but if you're broken and you sat off for a year then you can't so um, and a lot of the research that Pete always now finding is actually yeah I agree I won first. yeah I think a lot of the attributes we're finding in Pete always research links to being in a good position to generate pace at front foot contact anyway so we're actually now finding that health and alignment on pace probably are together mm. very important and they go together and a good bowling action has both 
Um, and it does. you haven't got to have one over the other, which I think in the past we've kind mm. of looked at and gone, well, 80% of the fastest bowlers are mixed, but you're not going to have a mixed action because you could get stress fractures. So you've either got to pick to be quick or be healthy. I don't think that's really true anymore. I think if you combine the performance research over the last 10 years with the mm. injury research the last three or four years, actually getting into a good position at front foot contact needs all the positions that you get into at front foot contact to be healthy. So... Yeah, we kind of had a really open chat at the start of the pandemic of around this with me and Mace, and we kind of went down this route, and then suddenly we realised that some of the elite players that he had within the Western Australia squad could benefit with some of these interventions or help, and it kind of really just snowballed from there in terms of... Cam Green was probably the most mm. ex- extreme example of being injured and trying to get back and having an action which at a young age and not having the real strength that you have when you get older um, could put you in a really bad risky position and then obviously when you have one stress fracture you're probably um well probably i don't know how what the odds are but i would say three four five times more likely Mm. to have another one quite quickly because your bone density drops so quickly Um, and i don't think we've really understood that you can't go Mm. from getting a stress injury having nine months off to recover and then going back to bowling the same amount of workloads that you were bowling before you got injured um, because bone doesn't regenerate that quickly. So you may be physically healthy and medically healthy on a scan and nothing's broken, and, but actually your bone in fast bowling's backs is the strongest bone known to man in terms of the loads it goes through, even stronger than rugby players. But if you don't play for a, for a certain period of time, mm. the, drop, the drop-off is like going into space where you have no gravity. So... Um, it's crazy how the human body and the spines in fast bowlers. Can we take a small tangent there and jump off to say like the period of time that you have off bowling and how that impacts your bone density? Because I know that Pete had some research on this and if I link it more practically into say off season, you know, guys might take three months off, you know, maybe longer. They might do nothing over that off season period and come back pre-season and expect that they'll be able to get better on the last season. Whereas, you know, I've been telling people to take four or five weeks off, then, you know, six weeks, start to get back into it. But if you could open up a little bit there on a tangent, I reckon that'd be great. Yeah. um, Well, first of all, it's not really completely my area. So um, I'd always probably heads up on going to see what Pete says about it in terms of that. um, Because we can really have (laughs) quite a few conversations in the pub and discuss it. But I'm... I think you need a rest after a long season, but I do mm. believe that you probably want to keep loading to a certain point. Um, and that might not be running in, bowling off a full run-up um, a certain amount of overs a week, but I think we're starting to get to a point where you don't shut down for that long at all because we know that you lose the bone density so quickly. Um, and I think the next question is really going to be, is there any way that we can maintain like a certain baseline of density through a close season without bowling um and i don't think lifting does it because i don't think it creates enough of the rotational muscle forces that you have um does lifting help probably help strengthen your uh, lumbo pelvic femoral muscles etc that help you stay stable but they're probably not loading the muscles within the back with the twists and stuff that we have in fast bowling and the loads that go on then you kind of think of other rotational sports in terms of like golf, etc., like that, which we see a lot of our players playing as well. And what effect does that have on bone density? But then you kind of go back to the results of Pete's study that show that the lumbar spine is probably one of the most hardest 
of all sports and you go actually there's probably no sport that loads it like fast bowling so we're kind of then back at the start again and going well can how long do we need to shut them down for how long do we can we get away with shutting them down before we start to see this drop off and what how much drop off do we want before we start then building it back up again so that they're back to that level at the start of the season and I think they're all the questions that I think are on Pete's desk at the moment in terms of that's the next part of the research and um, a lot of these questions that people are asking that's how research starts isn't it really yeah. like you can't uh, you need the question before you start the research and then the research is always two three four years behind where the question is mm. at the time so that is the frustrating thing with research but I think now we're probably heading towards a period where we don't shut down for very mm. long and we do try and keep bowling loads through the winter or wherever you are in the world at to a level that at least you've got a baseline that you can build back up again and you know that you can build from that baseline towards what you need to be at the start of a season. Mm. Yeah, I think that's um, a nice thing for some bowls to hopefully start to come around to. Yeah, and the other part of that is that obviously if you've been injured, and we are talking about Cameron Green a minute ago, that if you've been injured and you've lost that density, then you can't go back into bowling 40, 50, 60 over straight away again because... You're kind of, it's kind of like jumping up and down on a branch and it snaps and then you kind of tape it back together and you start jumping up and down on it again thinking it's as strong as it was before it's got the crack in it so um, you, That's you've one. got to kind of let the tree repair itself for a bit and then with Cameron Green's situation you've got four of them in a row so you kind of like you think you're probably back to a level of bone density it's probably normal for most mm. non-fast bowling adults in the world and if you took an adult out of just the pub that's never bowled before and chucked them a ball and went go and do this for continuously for a week, most of us would go, yeah, they're going to get injured. So it's not rocket science, really, mm. that it's, you've got to build them back up slowly. And I think if you look back through Cameron's workload, mm. you'll see that he is building up very, very slowly. And um, even now, I think that they're still monitoring how many overs a week he can bowl to try and make sure that in the next couple of years, he is really robust, and he's in that period, that situation where your Patrick Cummins or your Mitchell Starks, Hazelwood have got to where they've gone through this crisis zone between twenty and twenty four, where you're really susceptible to having stress fractures because your backs are still growing, um, and they can be robust and have really long um, international careers. Um, but that knowledge has probably only been about in the last eighteen months, or is been more widely accepted based on the research and the evidence in the last 18 months and I think it's difficult because A as an elite sport you're paying these people to be on the park and perform there and now so you do need to have a willing organisation and coaches mm. that understand the bigger picture and you've obviously their coaches are there to win and if they don't win then you don't know if they're still going to be there um, but so you've got that side of what professional sport is and winning is important and versus the duty of care of the individual long term and it's there isn't an, uh, an easy answer or solution to that problem I don't think um, so we do see like there's great examples across international sport and cricket where players have to bowl overs in games because the situation depends on it and how you then manage them after that and if you've got back-to-back -back test matches for instance can they go back to back and do it and i think these are all the questions now trying to understand again coming into some of the individuality of understanding well actually they are they do have bone density properties from uh, scans etc that we know that they can probably handle that versus somebody mm. else that might not be able to handle it 
Um, so there is a lot of information in the background that, on these decisions that are being made. And sometimes it's not all about the performance that what the fan or the person on Twitter sees. So, um, yeah, they can be difficult as well because you see players <laughs> taken out that might have taken 10 for in a game before, but we're suddenly in a hot zone or a zone where we know if they bowl another 50 overs mm. the following week, then they're probably very likely to snap. And then we don't have them for nine months. So you're trading off these sort of decisions as well. Um, mm. But again, it comes back to what we started with in terms of how knowledge yeah. is adapted. And your Fred Trumans or your Larwoods or your Dennis Lillys probably just bowled and they probably got these injuries and they probably didn't even know they had their, these injuries because a lot of the time mm. stress fractures are seen just through scans and not through pain because it depends whether you hit a nerve down in the zone that's cracked. Um, so, and again, that comes back to duty of care mm. in terms of, well, do you just keep telling them to bowl because they can because they've got no pain but versus what could happen longer term. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of, the more information mm. the more we learn, the more complex these decisions make on a technique a on playing etc so um yeah the stress fracture stuff is really getting quite complex and again obviously there's so many more factors in it in terms of just workload and technique you've got all the nutrition stuff um probably even like gender culture nationality mm. ethnicity etc um religion like obviously we're going through ramadan um, so there's players not eating and fasting and how does that have an effect on your bone density and what effects that going to have on the months following it where your body's still mm. recovering from whatever effect that has um, so there's lots of these different things to take into consideration around stress fractures not just have they got bad technique and are they bowling too much um, but I kind of think of it as a bit like a ceiling and if you have a bad technique and you bowl a lot, this ceiling's getting closer to your head and eventually it starts yeah. peshing you down and you feel that kind of hurts your back. Um, mm. So as long as you can keep the ceiling above your head far enough, you'll be gotcha. fine. Um, but the other problem is if that ceiling's so far away as well, then you can get injured just because you're not bowling enough. So you pick, suddenly it goes so high that it almost just drops because the pressure from above forces it down. Um yeah, so we've got cases where bolt guys don't bolt enough, the bone density drops down, they get injured. If you bowl too much, it's too much for your bone density to handle and you get injured. So it's kind of, you've, it's this big area in the middle that we're yeah. not really sure all of the factors of, and that's where the research will go, I think. Um, but we know enough to kind of say, with some common sense, if you've got injured or had a few months out, be careful building back up. And the same is probably with the shutdown. Don't go and shut down for three months. Um, but there are probably th some things you can do it wouldn't mm. surprise me if running with poor technique load gives you a higher bone density than with good technique just because you're in that tilted forward position which probably isn't great we know that uh, there's some some research with running mm. and changing direction which may put you into a position which, which puts you into a position which may be more linked to stress fractures based on what we've seen in other sports as well so um, it doesn't surprise me that they're starting to see more in football as well, where the pitches are starting to get harder or better and they're doing more and more games and they're changing direction. And if you've got a bad change direction technique and you're loading the back lots of times during a game, it's not necessarily a massive force, but that repetitive loading mm. um, is likely to eventually put too much strain on the back over a long period of time. Um, but it all comes, we're kind of now back in a position as well where we're trying to do some research to work out how much, how important is the actual force. 
Um, so we had a piece of work by Laura Keylock, which kind of, which okay. didn't link ground reaction force with bone density in the lower back. Um, so we kind of think that actually the muscle forces okay. in the twisting, etc., probably links it more, which is kind of, it links with other research around um, tennis players and the density of like the upper arm, etc., the rotational movements, and actually the muscle forces are probably much greater than the ground reaction force getting up to the lower back. So we're now looking at how much that force actually gets up there and is it actually the repetitive process of the back twisting a lot more. Um, and then, so, and that's ongoing research, we don't know the answers yet, but it's probably likely that it's a combination of both, that it's not actually the force that gets to the lower back in terms of the progression through the chain, it's probably the effect that you've got to produce within the muscles within your lower back to resist that movement and falling over. So it probably does have an effect if you've got big forces, but probably not in the way we've previously thought of it being like a crushing mechanism um, so yeah it'll be interesting to see where that goes but I think yeah the amount of time and how much you do it based on where you are from a physiological point of view of bones muscle strength etc is probably where your individuality lies um, and knowing that that you can't just take five bowlers and go right they're going to bowl x amount mm. overs a week and they'll all be fine isn't going to work so yeah, then going back to the cam stuff, um, away from mm. the bone density stuff, so I kind of explained there why he had these issues and why he was getting injured repetitively. Um, we then kind of looked at some technique stuff. Mm. We looked at what he was doing, where he was, mixed action, side arm, what positions he was getting into. Um, some of them made me wince when we first saw him, but... Um, and then we had to really, really, really try and reprogram Cameron. It was quite a heavily <laughs> intensive, like, tr like drills we were going through. Um, he should have probably had a crash helmet on on some of the drills. The amount of times he smashed his head into poles, and I was fearful I was going to get a phone call from Mace telling me he'd taken an eye out on a pole at some point. Wow. Um, just because we tried, we we were trying <laughs> to realign him so much that his brain had oh, his brain had defaulted back to what he used to do when he was younger because he hadn't bowled etc. And the biggest problem with young kids is because they can't generate pace and they run up, they run mm. up and then turn direction and try and just hurl it from like a side on position. So you end up with like this big change of direction in your run up. Right. And we know that these big changes yeah. of direction are probably linked to stress fractures in older adults because you don't you don't want to be doing it. Mm -hmm. he gets you in a really bad position so yeah cam had these kind oh, of defaults from where he'd yeah. learned to bowl yeah and then so he had these defaults and then he's obviously had a bit of a mixture of not bowling for four years and things kind of go back to default and you've had some work done to try and align you out of a mixed action to side on and you end up in a bit of a position where everything's a bit of a jumble and you're not really sure what's natural what's not natural where you're going and um we found that really difficult to try and get him to change anything just because it was so ingrained that it was this natural movement pattern that it was doing um so yeah we went really heavy and obviously when you go really heavy with poles and cones as we've already discussed it takes a long long time to get that to embed in um but we yeah we spent a long time working on it but it really just snowballed we went from we knew he was always going to play because he was his record with the bats ridiculous um so it was then, can we get him so that he can offer five overs a game if we need to? Can we get it so he can offer 10 overs and be a bowler within the white ball game? Can we get it to then be 15 overs, etc.? Um, and then go mm. from each innings. And we're trying to build it up in that sort of way. where, we, And we it was all finger in the wind stuff. We didn't know. We kind of went, well, we think this is safe. And then took a few off it to make sure we definitely knew it was safe. It was in terms of 
And we probably could have pushed it a little bit more, but then again, you kind mm. of end up within that situation of how far do you push it before the rope breaks and then um so it, it was really safe what we tried to do in terms of the overs and we probably went on the real conservative side but um yeah it went from just trying to get him to bowl and then his batting record got him in the australia side so it was kind of like okay this is about 18 months earlier and we were really hoping that we were going to lose him in a bowling perspective um but Australia mm-hmm. were really good. Like I can't talk too much about that side because I wasn't involved. But having conversations with Mace, they've been really um, in contact with Mace to make sure a what we were trying to do and what they're carrying on and what's going on on the field when they're training aligns with that. And all the conversation, the language with Cam is the same from both sides, etc. So he's not getting different advice now. He's moved up into a different setup, and I think that's another big problem of coaching and trying to do technical stuff that. Mm. If you do well, you lose them pretty quickly, and then suddenly they get another person with another idea with another piece of advice. And Cam's yeah. Cam's been really in touch with Mace a lot to kind of make sure, like, kind of go. This is, and um, I think that's great if you can get one person that you're really trusting of, and then you get advice, you double check it, etc. But again, that's difficult, and you have to be quite confident to do that because you're in the Australia setup and you've got an Australian bowling coach to do something and you've only been in there for five minutes and you turn around and go actually that's not really what I want to be working on because this is what we're trying to do and this is the plat like you can end up at loggerheads and Mm. arguments and players can quite easily go right we'll work on that because I know that might get me in the team for the game in the next so um, and again we're not trying to teach the bowlers to be coaches as well are we so again how much they understand from that perspective as well so it's difficult and it's, I think that's one of the big problems we have with our sport that you can bounce from coach to coach and how quickly coaches move on if you do a good job as a coach in a certain setup you suddenly move up as well and up and down um, so you don't you can in the elite game have quite a non-continuous process of coaches and different ideas and for some people that works because they find somebody that helps that will work quite quickly and so others it quite can be quite a hindrance um, and I think that's where the pace mm. program worked quite well for a long time. That there was almost somebody at the top in shiny, almost not error checking the coaching, but keeping an eye on what players were doing and whether um, the way we thought they'd progress was going through. And if not, there'd be conversations, and would there'd be not from a point of view of you're doing it wrong, etc. But you'd actually like you could have these conversations around just throwing ideas about and seeing what was working, what wasn't working, and stuff. So. Um, yeah, so with Cam, when he went off, we were like, yeah, we're not sure what's going to happen to it like, in terms of the way it's going to go. But I think it's just kept going and going. And mm-hmm. I think, I don't know where he is within the cycle now, but we can see, I think he's been bowling 15 overs in an innings in Pakistan as an all-rounder is probably around what most test match all-rounders are doing on average. Um, and he like, there's no reason he probably couldn't bowl a little bit more, but again we want to make sure that he's still on the park especially as he offers such value both sides of mm. the game um so yeah that was a re- and we learned lots mm, from that in terms good. of we got i can't say sit here and say we got it all right we, there was a lot of times where we had phone calls at midnight both sides looking at videos for two three four hours with wives hitting us on the head telling <laughs> us like, why are you not going to bed stop talking about fast bowling mm. um to <laughs> and like literally banging our heads against the wall because <laughs> that's so cool. a lot of the time you try you're trying things that you've done in the past that have worked 
But for each individual, every so and again, I've had this quite a few times in my career now, and you end up, I end seem to end up with people coming to ask me to help when they can't do it themselves, which generally means the information that's already out there isn't working. So it's like, can you look at this problem from an outside the box perspective and come up with a solution that's going to work mm. when we can't find a solution that's going to work within the toolkit that we've probably you already know? Um, so I've had that with illegal actions. I've had it with Cam as well now. Mm. A couple of others have had it with and you do end up banging your head against the wall and getting things wrong and I think as a coach it's fine to get things wrong but only get them wrong once like learn the second time or the second time or the, mm. the second time you see it yeah. understand what you did in the past keep a record of all these in interventions and um, remember what you did with one player and then try and use it that's how we develop our toolbox in a way like we have these different ideas and i look at players and kind of go oh this looks like he's got an issue the same as x and then well what do we do with x does that work okay it has or it hasn't and then if it doesn't you kind of go back to drawing board and try and work out what's going on again and i think this continuous circle of what looking at the now and here rather than looking at the future and the end of what a pretty action looks like is really important when you're doing these interventions to trying to change things that are really critical for injuries as well um so yeah i wake up mm. the other problem with doing consultancy ten thousand miles away is that generally you're not awake when the other person's awake so the amount of times i'd wake up in the morning and mace would have sent me through <laughs> some videos and like mace has gone well, yeah we've had a really good session today like here are the videos and i'd wake up and look at them and go that's not really what we wanted them to do and then having to go back and like you've got this 12 hour lag between what you're doing all the time and, uh, and then you've obviously got me who as a biomechanist wants it to be perfect and pretty and uh, and that side of me going as and I'm a perfectionist in just my general nature anyway um, so like yeah when we're doing illegal action stuff mm. I'm like if it's not zero except it, when you need headphones yeah. if it's not zero it's not zero like, <laughs> when in reality you've got 15 degrees I want to get to zero because I'm a perfectionist where in reality the coach is just mm. happy if it's below 15 and they can bowl again um, and there was some stuff mm. with Cam there. We he isn't perfect. He won't ever get to perfect. And mm. I think as a coaches, we know what perfect looks like, but understanding that we're working on the staircase towards perfect, and some players will never get to the top of the staircase just because their bodies or what they're doing mm. in another part means that there has to be some compensation somewhere else is really important. We can always continuously work on things, but and work mm. to improve and. You've got Jimmy and Brody who are probably the best examples of that, that they're still working on parts of their bowling action or their run-ups, etc., to improve or their skills. Um, but they're 100 mile an hour bowlers. So, um, yeah, you can't, like what you as a coach and a player believe mm. is, that's what I want to do. It's probably not possible for 99.9% .9 of anybody. So it's working where you can get to and what's, pitch you can work on that's going to give you a bigger step up that hill or staircase um, so yeah with cam as well it got to a point where almost as coaches we were doing the paralysis by analysis so cam wasn't getting this information but we'd look at videos and go that doesn't look good that doesn't look good mm. <laughs> and then you'd have to go back like 18 months get a video from 18 months ago versus where he was now and put them sideways and go Oh holy crap! He's gone miles different now. Like there is loads of change there to there. And if we were happy, like we weren't happy with that, but we'd be happy with that now then. Mm. And I almost have to reset your brain because you can end up looking at things in so much detail. Yeah. Um, and as a legal bowling specialist, I can pretty much look at someone's arm and see five degrees. Mm. 
Um, well, the rules, like, you can't see 15 degrees, but because I've looked at it for so many years, and I know some of the technical associations mm. in other parts of the body in terms of how the shoulders move um, and how the upper trunk moves in throwers versus bowlers, I pretty much can tell you without looking at the arm sometimes that they're going to throw it. And mm. when you're doing remediation, you have to kind of remember that actually mm. my job isn't to make it perfect. My job's to make them play again. So, And I think with coaches as well, we have that same problem sometimes of like, oh, it's not quite perfect. Why don't we do another drill where will align you by another one degree and it will help your forces by a little bit and you like might reduce your risk of getting a stress fracture by half or 0.5% or something. It's like at some point you've got to let these kids or players go yeah. and see what happens. You can't protect them from every single injury. It's impossible. Um, but yeah, if we, as long as you're kind of trying to work towards what you think is rather than going... And again, I think this is where the straight leg stuff comes in. Like, going in a session and I've seen some of the videos you've put on Instagram you don't mm. go from a bent knee to a straight knee almost in one session you get this improvement and if you improve it by a little bit then that's an improvement that they can use that energy further up the chain mm. um, and we people talk about why the yeah. players that are playing elite cricket and like Rabada etc still manage to bowl quick with bent legs well they're probably compensating something else within their bowling action by use, having a bent leg lower down they've probably got some other superhuman property higher up the body in terms of stretch mm. sort and cycle or strength that being yep. able to use that for a little bit longer and bend their front leg probably helps them trades it off a little bit um so yeah it's perfection isn't always the best for that individual i think is probably a good way of looking at it and trying to go through all of these no. things with cam i think he's probably in a good place at the moment but it's been a bit it's been yeah. a bizarre one especially watching the ashes where you're kind of like yeah, being a POM versus actually you want Cam to do well. and <laughs> So, yeah, it was kind of bittersweet. It was quite of an interesting one, really, because yep. we did quite a lot with Mark Wood on the pace program around his ankle injury before, I don't know what Ashes it was, 2017. Um, and he took the winning wicket in that Ashes series, which was quite funny. Mm. Or It was nice at the time because, obviously, it's quite a nice defining career moment of you've gone through some problems and then you've had this you're the picture that's on all the papers when you're in the action. Mm. And then this time around, Cam took the winning wicket. So it's kind of like, it's just a, a weird kind of circle of two stories ending in terms of working with a program within one organization <laughs> and a program within another. So yeah, it was kind of ironic and gave me a good chuckle when that happened. Um, but I think the best thing about Cam is you just see him playing cricket with a smile on his face. Right? And he realizes not where he's come from, but where this journey has been mm. on and how not lucky he is to be playing cricket, but, like he's enjoying every moment because he went through that three or four months of real struggle with trying to sort things out and getting back on the path, um, which is good to see. And then there's obviously the other stuff with Mace in terms of there's some other well-documented stories around AJ Ty putting some pace on, Berendorf getting back into the side. Um, who's the other? Who's the one that bowls? Richardson. Jai Richardson, yeah. Um, so there's been some stuff going on there as well. And... Work like talking with Mace about Jai Richards is really interesting just from the run up speeds perspective. Actually, when he's bowling at his best, he doesn't seem to lose any speed through the whole action, which is kind of like not what we think of as coaches. We think you break and then you carry on and you slow down, but actually, he gets through the action. And because all of his probably transfers so perfect between brace front leg, upper body, he actually doesn't lose mm -hmm. any of his center of mass velocity when he comes out of his action. It's almost a perfect transfer across. 
Um, mm. And then, is yeah, so that? that kind of, again, is another thing where in, now in, <laughs> don't, don't bowl, just keep running. Um, <laughs> uh, so that's really, like, you, then you start, when you work, you get this insight, you know, when you get this insight, it's really interesting because you start to think of more questions. Well, actually, we've looked at research of, do the people that break the hardest, their centre of mass velocity the most, bowl the quickest? Well, actually, should we be looking at just who, um, those that break the pelvis, do they bowl the fastest? Is it not related to centre of mass velocity? And, um, as coaches, we probably think of that anyway, in terms of if you stop the bottom half, the top half comes over. But in research, we've probably been looking at centre of mass velocity and thinking that that's the key thing to look at, when, and we've not found many relationships with it. So maybe we're looking at the wrong thing. Um, uh, so yeah, having a foot in one side is quite helpful because you generate more and more questions that you can go back to the other side and try and answer. Mm. Um, so and then yeah, so yeah, it's been fun working with Mace because kind of all the knowledge that I've kind of learned over the years, I've been able to kind of share with Mace and have some really interesting conversations. And then I obviously pick up a quite a lot of information and learn from Mace as well. Um, and yeah, so far they haven't done too badly this year. So um, <laughs> hope and they've got. If you look at their bowling group, it's quite deep now in terms of what they've got. Like you look at the CI that won the Shield. What was it last week? Two, three weeks ago, and the players that are away on international duty. It's quite a strong group they've got now, um, and a lot of it comes from the, just the brilliant work Mace has done over the last three, or, two or three years. Yeah, I might have to. Um touch base with him and see if he wants to uh, jump on for away a, now from a podcast too. <laughs> huh? So I think it'd be really cool to have a, a follow-up to, to this and then hear it from his side and then, yeah. you know, talk through, say, some of the things that he did with them. I don't know how much, you know, they're, they're able to share, you know, contracts and this sort of stuff or, you know, special secrets, which there are none of. But, yeah, I think that'd be um, really cool. Yeah, I think... So I think the Australia, like with Mace, it's been really cool because he's been quite open, but also like Cam's quite open. Like, I've had conversations with Cam about can I talk about it and I'm trying to hopefully put together something for a conference in the summer where Cam will record some video and we'll have something similar to this, but with me and Cam like going, what, how much do you understand? Nice. How much did you understand? What do you think in? How did you feel? What worked? Mm. What didn't work? Them sort of questions. And um, I think that that group in terms of Mace and Cam and um, Jason Berendorf and stuff, they're really, A, they reach out, they've reached out to me and I've never met them because I've been consultants from 10,000 miles away, which has been one of the most bizarre experiences ever. Um, but I think that's one of the things that probably would never have happened without the pandemic, like when everything that's gone on with Zoom and how used to it we are now. That uh, Yeah, I've done all this work with Mace and Westwell and pretty much in an advisory role to Mace rather than working for Western Australia. There's been no contracts or anything. Um, but it's all been done virtually effectively, which is shows the power now of what you can do over the telephone and iPhone and FaceTime. Yeah, seriously. Pictures on WhatsApp and stuff. Um, but they've all like reached out and just like gone like, which you don't normally get from players when you only go into the coach. So I think they're quite open in terms of just being a what they've done and there's been a few media articles I think over in Western Australia with them talking about what they've done and how it, they've put things together um, but yeah so I think from a just going forward point of view that 
we were talking about working out what works and doesn't work then it is nice if you can discuss some of the things that do work and what don't work so mm. that coaches have got more knowledge but again it goes back to you've got to make sure that you've not got joe blogs in the park trying to do it with a five-year-old or a ten-year-old and going well actually i've seen this article where they did this with cameron green with a load of poles so now I'll put a load of poles in and you've got to do this mm. you've got to, you still got to let every like people find their own way of these movements and some of these things are quite unique to the individuals that we're working with especially at an elite level um, but then again they're paid they're paid coaches to work this out on an elite level on an individual basis yeah and i love the you know the whole looking at the fast following action as a whole and then thinking you know if i just one single limb in the sequence that's going to have a flow and effect in the whole kinetic chain so i need to be conscious of that you know whenever i'm say addressing something and and that probably comes back into one of the things that I learned, you know, um, and I use the fancy term oppositional synergy because it was just fun to use big words sometimes. But synergy is just such a nice word to use. But thinking about getting both sides of the body to work together, you know, like I, I used to tell people that I'm no longer going to say coach the front arm, you know, like I don't care where you put it, but you know, the front arm connects to the front side of your body. And like, I want to use the left side to sort of power back so I can, you know, snap the right side over. Now, how you go about organizing your front arm to make that happen, just from an upper body perspective, thinking about dividing it into two parts that way, you know, you use your front arm to rip yourself back. A lot of the time you see people kind of pull the front arm in because they've been coached poorly into just, you know, driving it into their side, which means now they're just, that whole left side's stuck. So they've got nowhere else to go but in the side flexion then you see them kind of pushing the ball so i found just going like look let's coach more on the um the experience side let's see if we can get you a feeling and i love that you know again i kind of went through a bit of a, a phase of using the constraints then thinking you know what at the end of the day and and you've probably seen some examples of this in elite cricket where an international player has changed their technique but then they've gone back and like, well, it's obvious, you know, it wasn't natural to them. And like, when you're at, at the top of your bar and what you bowl this ball, you know, counts for a win or a lose, like you're going to have to try to revert back to what just feels natural, what feels comfortable. So I thought I may as well lead my coaching communication or coaching process down. Um, how can I like coach you on like, how does it feel when you're bowling your best? Like what's your best bowling experience? You know, give me some definitions. Let's start to talk about it versus what's your worst. And then within that, we can go, okay, well, what's missing? And then let's try to bring that back in. So hopefully in one way, it takes you away from kind of overanalyzing what's not working, which is just a never-ending cycle of knocking over dominoes and then it just doesn't work. But now you can kind of come back in a more, I guess, conductive thought process, go, well, you know what? I feel like I'm not getting it, so let's go with that. You know, And then you can kind of build some good coaching methods off that but, you know, we come back to say, and this is what I thought would be a, a fun thing to kind of chat about, you know, as a biomechanist, you've given me as a coach, like, you've given me some wonderful things to kind of look at, you know, guys that run up straight front leg, you know, and say in, in, in the delivery segments, the chest drive, the bowling arm blade, and, I, I, and I'll kind of think about it as going, all right, well then, which of these movements, you know, if I can kind of like use my front side to power through the bowling side, and I can get this part going first. So I'm not in too much of a rush to bowl the ball. I'm relaxed. I can allow myself to get this delay through here, get that stretch. Hopefully not too much so we don't get shoulder injuries like Stain and Anderson, which we've talked about before. But all of a sudden, like I can start to use my body 
to get the most out of itself. It's like the front leg, you know, like I want to use that front leg to power the rear leg through. If I'm not getting that transfer of force and I'm just kind of like, I don't know, it just looks pretty, it kind of plants and then you just kind of step through it. I'm not going to get much force there, you know, and, and I kind of found like I had a couple of, you might say, experience-based drills or I had a communication strategy I tried to give to people where I wasn't overcomplicating it too much. I remember sort of saying like, you know, when we look at the snap, like I reckon I can coach how to brace your front leg without even talking about the straight front leg. Because like, if you think about using your front leg to snap the rear leg through, you try doing that while bending the front knee. And you might get them to do it the wrong way. And it's like, oh, that doesn't work. That feels weird. But then you get right. So let's just try to do it. You know, use that front leg and really try to power the other one through. And you'll probably see them bend and re-extend. And, you know, I don't mind if they do that in anything. Probably a safer way to look at absorbing the forces. But all of a sudden, they get they had this feeling of what it's like to actually get power. And it's like, all right, let's see, you, you know, use that front leg to power the rear leg through. But now you're going to come over the top of yourself, you know, and then you kind of see them get that nice sort of stretch through the, the hamstring. They'll kind of feel that. They'll probably fall over if they do it properly. And all of a sudden they come back and go, oh, yeah, that kind of feels pretty powerful. And I haven't necessarily needed to to really do much more. You know, sometimes this is where I might use some constraints for um, alignment. You know, and you might have seen some of the videos of me going back out there and doing some work. I personally think I'm much more of a rebuild project than um, <laughs> that's some of my fast bowlers. But uh <laughs> Yeah, that's sort of where I've sort of tried to think about how I can blend all of this wonderful stuff together into a, a communication strategy and a coaching method, which is understandable, doesn't, you know, confuse them and uh, and actually get some um, results. I think um, te- coaching technique is difficult because we analyse technique in body positions at certain periods of time and what we see and what we want people to do. And then you get coaches that go, I want your arm in this position and I want you to go for this from here to here. And The problem is that technique isn't really reliant on body positions in certain mm. places individually or uniquely. It's all about timing. Mm. And you can't coach timing And with some of these cues yeah. of uh, put this in this position and this position and keep your legs straight. Coaching, I think, yeah. timing comes from feel and how you feel and rhythm, etc. Um, and that can come in two ways in terms of if you can create the right feel at the, at the timing within the action that you're trying to actually change the timings or you can try and create it in a feel of what is going on within the body in terms of energy and stuff um, so yeah like going back to your own personal experiences I always feel that I actually have better technical sessions when I just try and do feel stuff even though mm. I'm probably working on something that I know is really technical like um, but I also think in games it's far easier for your mind to continue the task mm. of trying to bowl a length ball at the top of off or a Yorker or a bouncer whilst thinking about how it feels as you're doing it rather than going yeah. right I'm running up and my feet are in this position I'm keeping my front arm up and I can see the inside of my elbow suddenly your whole focus oh, is can... on well actually that was right but then the ball's like six yards down leg because you've forgotten about the outcome whereas you can kind yep. of keep a feel <laughs> in your mindset whilst doing the task mm. um or in my experience, I can. Um, so I can complete them two things at the same time, whereas I can't process, have I done the... T- I'm still thinking about, have I done the technical stuff right whilst mm. I'm trying to let go of the ball, which you've got your mind so then not focused. No, where right. I can kind of fit... If I can get into a position, and one of the ones I like is leaving your hand behind, so like you're trying to, like 
and you can feel the stretcher leaving it behind. And when you feel that, you know you're then ready to mm -hmm. go. So as soon as you get feel that, and I know that from a feel person, I know how to feel it. So it keeps my mind focused mm -hmm. on actually what I'm doing. So I can find the feel and go. Um, so I think feels work really well because you can translate them into games and matches scenarios. Whereas I think cluttering players' minds with the paralysis by analysis stuff and then trying to coach that way, if you're having a bad game, your mind defaults back to what did my coach say on this day when the ball was going five yards down the leg? Oh, he said start run up, change my alignment and keep my alignment mm, yeah. or whatever it is. So, yeah, you know what I found. I'm a big happen. fan of trying to get players to understand what goes wrong through feel. Mm. I found that with some bowlers who've been coached down the you know, the more technical, breaking it down into body parts at certain times in the sequence. It's almost as if, like, for them to get their five following action right, they have this whole checklist of, like, points I've got to do. I've got to think this, do this, do that, do that, 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 like, just to get it right. It's almost like for you to just bowl one ball properly, you have to run through these, you know, 16 different checklists of cues and positional limb changes just to, like, get it right. And I thought, nah. We can't be doing that. But what also happens, and I found this as well in my coaching when I uh, might have given people, say, a, a cue, um, sometimes they would break that cue down into three different things, and that was their way to try to get the cue right. You know, like I might say, you know, try to point, you know, say say if I'm looking for yeah. some, beginning the separation at, say, you know, you take off. It might be bring the left arm and the right knee, and you're going to aim at those. And that starts with this coming across. Um, then I think, okay, so to do that, I have to bring, you know, my front arm across and then I have to drive my knee forward and then I need to kind of bring my... It's like, no, 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 no. I've given you the thing that I, that I want you to focus on. Don't try to break it down anymore because what happens is I'll break one thing down into three things, those things down again, they've got nine things and you've got 20 odd things. And it's like, now we're, we're so far away from what we we're trying to focus on. We have to almost like come back to square one. And I found that, you know, a way to kind of avoid almost all of that was to almost, you know, come back to, say, giving this nice overviewing philosophy. If this is what, what we're going to find what feels best, find what feels worst, kind of now try to get you to, you know, let's try to feel through what we're doing so that you can keep this nice, simple focus, this nice, simple cue, and not take the route of trying to break it down any deeper than you need to. And look, if the cue doesn't work, the cue doesn't work. We move on pretty quick. We just want to do that quicker than having you try to break it down into all these different things. But the whole checklist thing, I just sat there. As soon as I hear someone talking through their checklist, I just sit there and go, hold on, we're going to throw this book out. Like, where are you going to one? Like, this is not working for you. The, the problem with these checklists and or thinking about too much other than just being relaxed and thinking about the ball you're going to bowl is that you end up narrowing your motor control path more and more and more until... Mm like you were saying to bowl the perfect ball you've almost got like a one in ten chance of it happening or a one in a hundred chance of it happening mm. the problem then again it goes back to what we were discussing with the perfect technique and the optimal technique is what happens when it goes wrong so what happens if mm. you run up you're out of rhythm or you're running up into the wind or you're on a dodgy outfield and you're up and down like does that throw the rest of the checklist out because you can't actually physically do it um and what happens when that happens? Because you're no good to anybody if that means every ball's a yard down leg and it might be 90 miles mm -hmm. an hour, but who cares if you can't bowl a straight ball? Um, 
or you're bowling long hops or you're over pitching it, you've got no control of length, etc. So, yeah, I'm not, I think the relaxed stuff, and Shiny talks a lot about being relaxed coming into the crease. And if you're tense, then it's a bit like golf. If you're tense and you, you generally don't hit the ball as far, you mm. find it a lot more difficult to generate power. So, I think the relaxed side of it, from a physical perspective, but also a mental perspective, of if you've got a checklist and you're continuously thinking about it every ball, like, Mentally, it must be so tiring as well. Um, <laughs> uh, in a game, you've got to continuously well, think about seriously. it. So, I don't think it. I don't think necessarily it's a bad thing when you're coaching drills to have some checklists and when you're first working mm. on it. But again, it kind of goes back to how deep you've got to go down that innovation or the intervention path mm. to actually change something. But then, as you come out of it, you're not going to go from having a really big checklist. And I think. There's probably there's some research out there about how many points of things you should be thinking about whilst you're trying to do tasks anyway and how what they are and what the number is. I can't remember, but I don't think it's very many, like one or two or three. But mm. you shouldn't come out from having these three things straight into a game and doing it without going back up the ladder of getting out of your interventions of, right, well, mm. with Cameron's instance, we took some poles out. Can he still do it? Right, we'll take the poles out, but we'll leave like the cones on the floor where we want his feet to land. Can he still do it? Take them out. Can he still do it? Right, we'll leave the line in that gives his alignment. Can he do it? Take the line out. Can he do it? Round the wicket, over the wicket. Can he do it? And then once you can hold it for, and this might, it's not, it's not one training session. It's over a period of time um, that you have mm. to do, or you try, you build back into not with being able to complete it without any things. And then the other thing you can do is you can build some of these interventions into warm-ups in terms of right, well. Yeah, if my work on is I know that I have to be aligned well in my warm up I'll work on my alignment and then that pro, that pro, primes me ready for the game um, so if you know really some of the technique flaws that go wrong in games you can spend six of your warm up balls working on it I always thought that you know say you know when you're at training you know you do whatever the team warm up is but like you still have to bowl a few balls before you're actually ready to say bowl at match intensity you know, like no one can just, I don't know, do whatever local or club or kind of warm up you do and then jump straight in the nets at match intensity and bowl. Well, like, wouldn't it be great if there was a net or two nets, depending on the facilities, where you can just bowl your first two overs, which is your warm up, work on something technical to, like, you know, keep ticking off what you need to do, and then you move into your competitive nets? You'd be ticking off your technique all year. Like, it just seems like a no-brainer to keep ticking one box, you know, making sure that technique's staying strong for the rest of your cricketing career. And then you can do extra work if you need to. Yeah, I think, so, I go through quite a warm, like when I we play games we warm up on the square before the game, but I probably only bowl four or five deliveries off my full run-up, but I probably bowl 18, like, deliveries. Some of them are, like, off two paces to start with to try and make sure that my brain knows what that position is and then you jog in and get it short and you're almost priming your brain to like i'm not a big fan of muscle memory because i think it's a terrible phrase because your brain your muscles don't have brains but you're trying <laughs> yes. to yes, get your body true. into a position um you're trying to get your body or your mind into a repetitive nature of you know what the movement patterns are and um you can build into it it's easier to go through it slow and build up into it um, but I do the same in nets. Like the opening bowlers, or the person that bats first in the net must hate me because you go down the nets and I'll walk in off two or three pay and build it up. And it's probably not mm. until the second or third bat that I actually decide I'm going to come in off a full runner. Um, so you can build it into your club training sessions. Like you just have to be a bit selfish about what you want to get yeah. out of your training sessions. And 
not give really a monkeys about what the batters <laughs> want at the other end. Like, yeah, you might want me to come in off my full run up and bowl properly, but that's no benefit to me if every ball's going down leg or it's training me into bad habits. Mm. So training is about getting the things out for you. It's your game. It's what's going to happen to you when you perform at the weekend or in your matches. So, And that's what the elite level do so well. They have their individual technique sessions, etc. And we kind of lose that the lower you go down the, the pathway. Um, but something like you were saying about having your technique net, that um, Glenn Chappell, who's head coach at Lancashire, I do some of the coach ed stuff with, they had a system over the winter where in their indoor school, they had one net, which was, this is your net. If you come in this net, everything you do is filmed, it's judged, mm. it's looked at. The other nets to the side of it, are, you can do what you want. You can work on technique, you can do slower balls. You can, If your ball goes into halfway down the net, you're bowling short every ball. It doesn't matter, it's not filmed, it's not judged. Mm. But when you come into this middle net, or whatever net it was, this is a net where you're doing your work on and we're measuring where you are at this point in time. So you have to be ready to bowl when you come into this net. And I think that's quite a nice way. Mm. It builds pressure in that you get in match situations as well. Um, but it also mm. gives the players freedom to come into the net knowing that if they go and work on something. So I think that was a really nice setup. When you split up, warm up and say competitive nets, which I think is something that a lot of say younger players probably don't do and then you find like they might they they have the struggles of i struggle to bowl in a game but i can bowl at training and they never differentiate when the warm-up's finished and when now i'm going to switch on this is when it gets competitive this is when i put myself under pressure and so i love the whole idea of you know having a net for you to say warm up with not just for i mean i like the whole idea of having a big technique or developing some sort of skill as well like with some skill constraints but to actually say like now you're on like that's huge if you, if you expect to be able to walk into a game and then first ball try to get it right but you've never actually trained it in the nets well obviously it's going to be a challenge you know now obviously for you know bowlers like that it doesn't really matter how many others we bowl it might be you know they can just sort of get it right but for those who now they're kind of filing in games, you know, and even their mindset's having to, to sort of struggle. They've probably never actually told themselves at training, this is the ball, which is going to be match intensity or match scenario or I'm on now, you know? So that was a tangent I wanted to throw in there. Yeah, I think there's a few ways you can do it though. Like Even in matches though, like, obviously at an elite level, you have to be on, but they have obviously a lot of, different warm-up processes in terms of they'll someone will run out with a mitt and they'll bowl on the square and you've got a lot more time between mm. and when you're on and practice sessions and etc like so they do have the chance to warm up and be on whereas if you go down into the club game which i think is a big area that people like we can still look at um training i <laughs> i pick a couple of people that i don't want to bat well against me <laughs> which might seem a bit <laughs> like evil but one of them is a bowler that I work with quite a lot that we've been working, like he's an all-rounder, we, we talk a lot about fast bowling and technique and stuff. So every time he's in the net, I'm on, I want to get him out. And he's the same with me when I'm batting. It's like, that's the person we're getting out. So you can do that. You can pick people um, to like mm. say, right, that's the person I'm like going that. at. And it doesn't have to be the same person every session. You don't even have to tell them. You can just kind of go. Um, but I also mm. try and work our batters out in our training sessions. So I'm like, right, I know how I would get him out in a game. That's the plan I'm going to work on. So, same mm. batter. He, like, he knows this. We talk about it, and he probably won't even know, won't watch this and know who it is anyway. But mm. I know that he walks across <laughs> the stumps, so I'll try and drag him across and then right. pin him LB. 
Uh, doesn't work very often. It not, and normally, if we're playing in a game, it probably costs me 50 before he misses one. But um, right. So, yeah, there's that side of it. You can... But being on from the first ball as well, I think there's two points there. Like One is, A, you can practice it in the nets, but try and go through your warm-up or what you do before. The second point is, at the level you play at, your 70%, 80% warm-up balls are probably okay if you bowl your best ball. So you can actually use your first over or three or four balls to warm up. Like still come in with your full run, but don't try and bowl the wicket-taking delivery first up or the bouncer first up. Like the batter isn't trying to smash you out the ground first ball because they're trying to get their eye in and warm it. So you can get your eye in and your lengths in and your feels in within that first over. If you try and run in and bowl half volleys and long hops and halfway down and you get whacked because the batter finds that easy, then that's worse. So I actually think you can use... You don't have to be on-on from the first ball, but you can make sure you're on by the end of the over for then your next mm. two, three, four, five overs. And I think that's quite a big mistake a lot of club cricketers make of, oh, I'm on. Like, I've got to impress from ball one, otherwise I'm going to get taken off again. Like, if you've got a good captain, they'll give you at least two overs. But if your first over goes for 10, you're putting yourself under a huge amount of pressure straight away to bowl another over. And then that generally gets worse because you're now trying even harder. And so it comes back to all them feels and relaxations, but actually building yourself into your, your session. Um, it's a bit like you wouldn't go out for a sprint and just sprint get straight in the blocks and sprint like mm. you give yourself a couple of practice starts etc so you can do that within cricket as well you can bowl the first two and three and just say right i'm gonna try and bowl my best ball at 70 80 percent effort which hopefully if i'm hitting a top of four stump there's not gonna be on a good length most batters aren't going to be trying to whack you out the park off that length regardless of whether it's 78 percent mm. effort um because they're probably going to have a look at you first or second ball up anyway, even if you're coming on in the middle of a game. Yeah, and that's a nice thing to think about with um, what kind of intention you're training. You know, I sort of had this thought that a lot of the time we definitely train with a technical intention. You know, there might be that, that, that kind of a focus there. We probably sit there and think about a skill intention. You know, I want to bowl top of off. I want to bowl, you know, yoga, something like that. But... I think that tactical intention where now you're actually thinking about the batsman's experience, you know, just like me, I'm bowling my first ball, he's facing his first ball. You know, how can I make it uncomfortable for him? How can I kind of figure out where his technique isn't quite lacking? And then ideally, all those skills that you've practiced at training, hopefully you've done that, you can now start to link into a plan where, like you said, like if his head's falling across or his, you know, toes pointing out, you might pick something out of his arm. His technique and go right. I mean, Jimmy did it so well against Shane Watson in that Asher series. You know, a few away, bring one back in. Prime LB. You know, I doubt he was thinking like, I'm just going to bowl an out swing and just just going to go over fifth stump. We're thinking like, I'm dragging across, I'm dragging across. Now I want that big pad. You know, and you definitely saw him go for a couple of fielded wicket, but eventually it kind of worked. And like, that's such a nice link that I think that that third intention. You know, having that tactical at least training it, thinking about how you can start to apply your skills, how you can start to understand batsmen and even start to have a think about their experience. You know, definitely some bowlers get so caught up in their own experience. Oh, I'm having a shit day, this and that. Like, you must forget that, like, there's two blokes out there in the middle that are ganged up on, you know, and they aren't going to be finding it easy. But they'll find it much easier if you, you know, you know, just let them, let them go about their business. Yeah, I think it's a great, I think, what you think about when you're bowling and not just going through the motion of bowling is really important. 
And we're all guilty of it. We all go through games where we just run up and bowl and don't really put that much effort or thought into what we're actually doing. But there are a number of different like things that you can do. And I think one of the big things is not getting carried away with emotion in terms of if you go for a bad ball, then, well, it's on you. It's your, <laughs> you bowled the bad ball, get over it. Like you've got another. It's not like you're a batter. If you play a bad shot and get out, you've got to sit and watch for the rest of the day. Like you get another mm-hmm. go, so make the most of it. And Mace is quite big on this. Of every ball's an event, it's not, but they're not linked, and they are linked a little bit because you can set players up, etc. But actually, performing that individual delivery is a unique event. It's not linked to the ball mm-hmm. before or the ball after. Um, so, and golf's the same. Like golf's probably the toughest one in terms of you because you got the same <laughs> putt or the same shot that you've had and you've missed it three times. Then. Yeah, your brain takes over and goes, "Well, you're gonna miss it again." And I think bowling's very similar. If you run in thinking, "Well, I bowled the blast ball down the leg side, so the next one's gonna go there," or you run up thinking, "I hope it doesn't go down the leg side," mm. your brain's got a great way of making it go down the leg side. Um, one of the only useful sports science psychology tips my dad ever gave me was, "Well, if I tell you to think, about, don't think about a pink elephant. The first thing you do is think about a pink elephant." So, um, I think that's the only uh, sports psychological tip my dad yeah, ever given yeah. me, coming from a non-sporting background. But I think it's a great, great mindset. If you think about you the negatives, really well with, um, like yeah, mental if you think about the negatives, then that's generally what happens. And then <laughs> yeah, like put that negative into the batsman's mind. Yeah, and if the bats like so, again, like you, the batsman is thinking probably not negatively, but he'll be questioning what the next delivery is going to be. So if you can get onto that positiveness of he doesn't know what you're going to do, therefore his job's a little bit harder because he's got to work out what you're going to do and then do the right thing. So he's got two things to decide, whereas you've just got one thing to decide, and that's where you're going to try and deliver the ball. Um, and try and be positive with what you're going to do. So mm-hmm. like, we all bowl bad balls, and sometimes we bowl bad balls, like wise down the leg side, trying to bowl the right ball, and you've just got something slightly wrong. It doesn't mean that you're going to bowl the next one down the leg side. Um, so I tend to push, a le- I try and push my in-swinger mm-hmm. down the leg side. But it doesn't mean that my next ball, which I might ball as a wobble or an away swing, is going to be down the leg side. It might just be that what I've tried hasn't quite worked, and I'll go back to the ball that I've bowled well for 10 mm-hmm. overs or 10 balls to set somebody up, and I'll go back and hit the length again. So it's understanding that your deliveries aren't linked one, to one, two, three, four, five, six. But actually, if you've bowled 50 good balls and you suddenly bowl a bad ball, well, why are you thinking about the bad ball and not the 50 good balls you've bowled? Um, and I think also we get into a habit of when the ball does something and it suddenly mm. stops doing things, we suddenly find an inability to be able to change line and length because, well, the ball swung two overs ago, it should still be swinging now. Or in reality, you've got to think, well, it's not doing that now. How can I adjust my lengths? Or, and if the ball was still swinging, if I pitch that length, like you're trying to reprogram your mind mm. and go, actually, it won't do what I think it's going to do. Um, yeah, I think it's a fascinating thing, the psychology of fast bowlers, because... I think you have to be a little bit stupid or mad to be a fast bowler because you know you're going to get hurt at some point. But that doesn't really help the tactical side of it at some point because you're stupid <laughs> and mad. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, true. <laughs> but it's a game. It's a big game. It's it's why I think cricket's so great because there's so many different like aspects of different sports. Like fast bowling and batting, you can argue is a bit like chess. Like you've got. Batting's a bit like golf and hitting sports. You've got bowling's like throwing. You've got the fielding, the diving around like a goalkeeper, etc. There's like there's so many aspects of all the great sports within one sport, and then you've got obviously the individual versus team nature of it, and the massive, the massive uh, 
psychological aspect of it, it's a massive game of failure like if you don't fail then you've done a good job whereas in reality you host other sports so if you you trip mm. like you play well then you win whereas you can play well in cricket and lose um there's been yeah i think there's been some examples in the championship this week where players mm. have scored hundreds and double hundreds and i think craig overton took 13 for for the match and lost so um yeah you're not going to come out of the wrong side of taking 13 for for about 100 and lose most <laughs> weeks are you so um but he probably doesn't feel like that was a great achievement because they lost so yeah, it's yeah it's a strange game but i i think mm. the more you dig into it and think about it the better you'll be from a performance point of view but the more you dig into technique and think about technique and when you're playing then the worse you're going to get so it's understanding what to think about and what's good thoughts and what's bad thoughts yeah. and being positive like i think if you if you're negative within a game of cricket whilst you're performing a task either batting or bowling it's just a matter of time before you're taken out of the game either by being mm. out in batting sense or your skipper saying sorry you're not bowling well enough to stay off um, and mm. to and to, I've got to the age now where actually and I've read some books around pressure and stuff like that like the only person that puts pressure on themselves is you like most of the other people around yeah they might be oh he's bowling rubbish or he's bowling long up yeah. but by the time you walk off the pitch they've forgotten about what you've done you're the only person that thinks about your performance so all that pressure is you and it's the same with golf and putting like if you free putt the only exactly. person at the end of the round that remembers you free putted is yourself um, whereas if you make the putt for a two the only person that remembers you made the putt for the yeah. two is yourself so um, unless you're Jordan Spieth a miss from a foot at the, <laughs> at the RBC this week um but yeah so again like trying too hard and putting pressure and not being relaxed and but that's well said yeah it's all your it's it's your in your own cocoon of what your beliefs and understandings are so give yourself the best opportunity by being positive and not putting too much pressure on you the other thing i think that's fascinating is if we're all in it as good as we want it to be we wouldn't be playing club cricket we'd all be playing international cricket and <laughs> knocking over your Coley's and Joe Root's every other ball that we bowled like, <laughs> so it's another game of sport of failure that we're only as good as what we can get to yeah. So, um, yeah I think just having some perspective and I'm a big believer in yeah. and I think this comes through elite sport and there's some podcasts that I listen to around high performance that you have to own what you do wrong and that's what in any walk of life like if you get it wrong own up and say well I got it wrong and but understand why well, that went wrong and try not to do it again or make that mistakes again. And it's the same in sport. It's the same in life. It's the same in work. Like, if you make a mistake, own it. It's your, like, but learn from it and move on. And most people forget about it pretty quickly. Exactly. I find that, say, with the you know being an online coach and um, obviously in doing that, I wanted to kind of coach everything in fast bowling. Where I just had more fun kind of doing that. So, you know, half of it's coaching, half it's mentoring where you know, like the way that I've sort of structured my business, you know, I am here to mentor you as much as I'm here to kind of like coach your straighter front knee, so to speak. But through that, you know, I've sort of had a chance to kind of all these players like guide them through some of these thought process, processes, you know, you know, like you never on your own to say what you've got going through your mind. If you are struggling with something, you know, like, or you are a bit rattled or you can't quite figure something out, that's where I could probably add some more value. And that's when you almost give me a chance to like apply my knowledge. Like I often find like, I can't just reel off an amazing Instagram post, so to speak, or just reel off like an absolutely incredible line of fast bowling 
you know, knowledge. Often, like, it's through what people ask me that I can think about applying something and then putting it through in a way that communicates and has the context, you know, respected. And, and then you can sort of take something away. But I probably take the most fulfillment, I reckon, as a coach out of seeing some people grow as not just like cricketers, but seeing them grow as people as well. Because these kinds of things translate back into life in general. You know, like if you're a better person, you'll be a better cricketer. Absolutely. You'll handle pressure better. You'll be able to focus clearer. When you do sort of face moments where things aren't going your way, you'll be able to learn from them instead of capitulating emotionally under them and then find your way back into what's going well. I remember a Sky Sports thing and like Nasser Hussain said something about like, if you want to play for England, you've got to have your best day every day. It was something like that. But I really enjoyed how it didn't mean you're supposed to go out there and take, you know, five for every week. It's just like in any moment or like how you put it, in any event during a game of cricket, you have to find a way to bring your best to try to find a way to get your best out of yourself. And if you get hit for three sixes in a row, but you bowl two balls too short, one ball too full, and you go, all right, well, that's easy. The line's been great. I've just got to find that middle ground. And then away you go and you go and do it. Like you've been able to bring yourself back into the game. Whereas, you know, what you might find with people that, you know, struggle, haven't yet got those, maybe that say security themselves yet, you know, as, as solid as it could be, you know, they'll just capitulate under that, you know, um, failure. And then they'll just bowl even worse. Cause you know, like I said before, the brain has a wonderful way of, you know, doing what you don't want to do because it doesn't understand the word don't. It just understands action. And if you put the action of a wide into your mind, congrats, mate, you're going to go and bowl a wide. <laughs> and I want to pat you on the back for doing so because that's what you told yourself to do. It was just a shit thing to tell yourself to do. <laughs> yeah, I think the brain's... The problem with being an individual, and I think this is where, obviously, with mental health issues that people highlight these days, and your brain, and if you're on your own with your brain, generally tends to side with your own thoughts. <laughs> So you can end up into a negative spiral very, very quickly if you're just on your own. And I think, especially mm. with the pandemic and teaching online, where you don't see... Your own worst enemy. Yeah, you, but even with like, so with students, like you were saying about learning and students and online teaching and coaching, I've learned probably more about teaching um, and not emp well, empathy in a way, but also what students need from a anxiety point of view from teaching online because all of the comforts they get from being face to face in terms of Paul can you just explain this to me at the end of a lecture or Paul can we walk to the pavilion or walk, as you walk to your office can I ask a question about something or oh hi Joe and Jack like talking together about something and I can walk over and correct them if they're wrong within a conversation or their peer-to-peer groups of conversations you don't get that and I think online coaching is great because they've got you as that sounding board um, and that's probably why this work, like why the fast bowler entity works, is they've got this person that they can fall back on and question their own thinking, and you fill some of them gaps. And we learned this like in teaching. I had I tried to create these spaces online in terms of message boards and groups because you noticed it so much that students just lost all confidence in their own ability because they didn't have somebody sitting next to them in a lecture theatre going, "Yeah, yeah, that's right," or when they're talking about exams, like. Or assessments like oh i'm doing mine on this like and being able to not even mm. asking whether it was right or wrong but being able to explain it to each other um so i think like having someone on whatsapp where you can kind of go right i've worked on this today it looks like mm. this is that what i'm going to be doing and you probably just stick a thumbs up back and 
you don't give much feedback because you don't want to clutter them too much, but you want them to have the confidence they're doing the right thing. It's like they're really small time, not like small times, amounts of time that you're actually having to do anything mm. or interact, but they're so key and crucial within development of adults, I suppose, as well. And I think um, that's where all these benefits come from in terms of a little more resilience and self-confidence. Um, but also, I don't think it's a bad thing to have some of these thoughts at the the ages mm. that people probably are. Like, like I've like I've always had anxiety, and um, not from a diagnosed point of view, but from a point of view that I know that there's certain situations I don't like going into, or there's certain situations as well um, where it can trigger it. And being a <laughs> an online mm. conversation, like five years ago, I probably would have just shied away from as many of these as I could, but I think it's important to understand that actually it goes back to the bowling yeah. analogy that the 50 good things that you talk about are better than the one bad comment you make in a com- in a conversation that somebody picks up on or two people pick up on and make a comment about. Um, so you learn these skills and like all of these things, the games and work, mm. etc. all of these skills that you learn from games of sport are so crucial in developing people as humans and stuff and it's why i think we need to be careful around like obviously exclusivity and stuff like that that's going on at the moment in terms of trying to keep people in cricket especially in the uk with everything that's been going on that's been well documented um because it isn't just a game where people play it. it's actually a a sport where it develops people as well and gives you really good skills i think cricket as we've already discussed so many elements of it and so many things that it can teach you it's not mm. There's, yeah, you've got failure to overcome, you've got resilience, there's anxiety, there's pressure, there's um, being part of a team, but being part of your own, responsible of your own individual parts of that team. Mm. It is quite similar to the real world and going out to work and <laughs> dropping into work at 18, 21 or wherever if you end up coming out of education and suddenly going, oh, this business isn't mm. that much different to a cricket team. Like, then people over there in HR are like the openers and you've got the people over there like the middle order and the people down on the factory floor are like your fast bowler doing all the hard work and it's actually if you mm. can make sure that you fulfill your job and do your role then the business carries on <laughs> operating so, um yeah i think yeah there's a lot that can be said but actually mm. don't take it too seriously at times because it isn't work but you can learn a lot out of what's going on as well yeah, it is fun. and we're doing it for fun like a lot of us are doing it because we're not paid mm. like we're just doing it because that's what we want to do at the weekend and if you're like me and you've got a wife and a child at home, it come, you get more flack for doing it than not doing it. So you need to make sure you're having fun. Well, I reckon um, for the last, you know, 10 or 15 minutes before you head off to golf, like, I'm curious to hear about what you're currently working on with your technique. Because I think, you know, I, I can only imagine, like, anybody who might watch these or, you know, who sees some of, this, some of the research you've written um, or some of the posts that I've done, like, might wonder like as a coach or a biomechanist like what do you do with all that knowledge for yourself struggle um (laughs) it's difficult because again and i know everything that i do wrong and (laughs) i look at pictures of myself and think holy crap if i saw pictures of somebody like that who's playing elite cricket that i'd probably shoot them Mm. um but I think it goes. It's pro- I'll be honest. Like I used to be, I just used to be a bowler that'd run up and try and bowl far too quick, and it. Mm. And also, I've never really done any S and C work, so I probably went for till I was about thirty, where I didn't really do any gym stuff. Like I've always naturally been quite 
skinny without having mm. to do a lot of work. So, um, and I played football and I played lots of sports as well. So it probably helps, but I just always just seems to think it was natural. And then you get married and mm. have a child and you do half as much and you start putting weight on. Um, <laughs> but I got to 30 and my best bowling years were probably 29 onwards. So the last four or five years. Um, and I'd say that's probably because I've stopped trying to run up and bowl as quick as possible. Um, and actually started to think about actually what I'm doing more. Um, Mm. And I think I would have probably tried to change my technique a lot. And I probably have, like, even in the last five years, tried to change things, but always end up going back to where I was because you end up more variable. And it, um, so I would say, actually, the stuff that probably I've worked on the most of the stuff that I've learned from everybody else that I talk to. So, right. and even playing with players. So I've moved clubs in the last couple of years and looked at. And obviously the team I play for now are in a higher league than the team I left and you aspire to get into that team and stuff like that. So mm. even last year I was play when I played for that the team in, that were in the Premier Division, I'd probably look back and think, Well, I tried far too hard, put myself under too much pressure. Mm. Even all the stuff that we've discussed now, on yeah. a game day I've devoted back to what I'm telling other people not to do. So um mm. I understand like the pressures and the difficulties of actually when it comes to the red mist that you kind of default back to what's natural for your brain to think about. And um, yeah, there was probably periods in games last year where I ran up and just hoped the ball would go in the right place and I wouldn't get hit for four. Mm. Um, especially when you're playing against pros that are being paid to play at the weekend and you're thinking, well, your first instinct is of I shouldn't be playing on the same field as these. And then you have to fight your way out of that mindset. So then I've got to get them out. And mm. so again you end up going through that scenario and now I'm look back at it now and think well I'm far more prepared this season because I've been through it I know the consequences it's not that bad yeah I wasn't very happy mm. with where I bowled but in reality I went at six and over or eight and over at worst um and I was bowling badly so now if I can relax and bowl my best then it should be better than that um but I tend to now just try and focus on learning new deliveries being more consistent stuff like that in terms of rather than really trying to work on check technique and stuff like that, I think at 35 I've probably got to the point where it's too late for me to make loads of host of changes and they'll be <laughs> successful and I think that's a key thing as a coach to understand like there is a point beyond which it's probably not worth trying to change technique mm. um, early adolescent years teenage years 20s it's probably fine but actually how much are you going to do for a 30 year old bloke who's not going in the gym and probably training once a week there's probably not a lot you can do so you're probably then best off working on some of the mental side of it or the strength side of it to keep them non-injured mm. I think my best years have probably coincided with doing the ground so I did the ground for two or three years right. at my old club last year I didn't do the ground and I had a good season but I probably bowled well for the first half of the year and ironically I'd spent the pre-season in the gym so I probably had quite a good build or level a baseline of strength that probably dropped off yeah. over the season as I yeah. played less cricket drank more beer and um, towards the end of the season <laughs> I probably bowled worse than I did in the first half of the season um, yeah. whereas this week I've done the ground again because our groundsman's away and then I bowled pretty well at Saturday and there's probably a link between actually like having a daughter who's heavy enough that when you have to lift her up and move around is probably doing your own workout and you're doing stuff mm. which is pretty natural for fast bowling in terms of rotating your trunk from one side to the other to lift them around. Um, versus dragging a lawnmower and turning around a hundred times, seven times a week, and probably yeah. developing all the strength across your pelvis. Probably quite good for fast bowling. <laughs> you um, found the best drills. So, 
from me, from a technical point of view, I don't do a lot. I've been... Yeah, the best drill is cutting the wicket. Um, so, I think now I just... Like this... I've never bowled a wobble seam. So, like this winter, I spent a lot of time trying to develop how to bowl a wobble seam. Um, I've always had an outswinger. I've had a bit of an inswinger that I can mm. bowl. But I've, now this... Yeah, I've tried to bowl, learn how to bowl the wobble. Which, ironically, I took two wickets with on Saturday mm. in the first game I've used it. So... <laughs> Um, it definitely seems to work on green pitches in April, um, which isn't probably surprising considering that I prepared the wicket. Um, but I think, yeah, my yeah, my side of it continues to get better is now my skills. I think my technique side of it is going to be what it is. So I'm now working on skills, slower balls, like inventing slower balls in a way, different grips, just messing around. But then passing that knowledge on to the people in our team that are 20, 21, 22, 23, having discussions with them mm. about what they can do. I spent most of my winter in the nets um, with the batter and the bowler that I talked about earlier and discussing run-ups and discussing different grips, discussing how to get... And he, like, this lad swings the ball absolutely miles. So, mm. um, yeah, like different deliveries, um, talking about bowling a ball where you don't break your wrist stuff like that to try and like deceive batters in terms of slow ball. it's not a different looking slow ball it's just one that doesn't break the wrist mm. so it looks the same um, and just different things like that and I think skills within fast bowling you've obviously got technique and everybody hopes on about ball speed but in reality if you get it up above 120 clicks 70 miles an hour like in a match and you can wobble the ball around and you can get it to do something off a seam like you'll be successful at a lot of levels mm. um so ball speed is important but actually skill like if you bowl 80 miles an hour and it's halfway down or a half volley every other ball or a full toss mm. then you won't get the success you will if you bowl a little bit slower with a lot better skills so you've got technique and you've got skills and then you've obviously got the mindset and all the other stuff and the snc that underpins all of that so I'm probably away from technique and more in skills at the moment, but it doesn't mean that I don't think about my technique in terms of I've got the feels that I know. Like I know when I bowl to left-handers that when I come back over the wicket, I fall away if I don't think about it. Um, I try and use my front arm. So it was interesting earlier you were talking about the front arm. Mm. I think the front arm in the bowling action tells you a huge amount about what's going wrong in terms of timings before you get there. Mm. So I think those that have gone too early have lost the balance through back foot contact. So everything has to come forward and the arm comes down um, to get the centre of mass more over the base. I think the ones that are in really good positions are the ones that can hold on to it higher for longer mm. because they're back and they can, they've got better probably core strength and can hold that position, got better balance. Um, and then you see some people somewhere in the middle and obviously that's all different things. But I do think that the front arm is a great indicator mm. as a coach to go actually what's going on in the rest of the action because we use our arms for balance so yeah that's if it. you've got one arm out the back and the other one's out the front then you're spread it spreading your mass around quite a lot so um i don't think you should be out here but i think if you go high and then pull down like you want to be high i think to help drop the back shoulder down but um you've got to go from here to getting it into here pretty quickly mm. so i do think the like the pull down analogy is right it's just it's where it comes from and at what time like you don't mm -hmm. want it like you don't want to be doing it uh before front foot contact you want to be trying but a lot of bowlers will do it before front foot contact because they've gone too early the top yeah. half lost the timing and 
generally when you see that happen, there's no snap and they bowl a lot of shorter balls because they end up forward early. And, um, that's one of my fails. I know when I lose my top half early, I drag the ball down. Um, and I can feel it as well. I, like, I feel my torso decelerating to make sure that my arm gets up in time to let go of the ball. I almost right. got, if I could stop it, I wouldn't bowl the ball, but mm. I can't. I, it happens naturally. But I know it's my. I know halfway through my bowling action, it's going to happen. Um, but I think again, you're talking about feels, knowing these feels and knowing your misses, like in a golf analogy, like know where you miss regularly and make sure that you factor that into your shot selection. Mm. Um, allows me to go back to the end of my mark and know what's going on. Um, it happened on Saturday, to be fair. Dragged one down, got hit for four or six over Cal Corner. Next ball, LBW took the wicket. Um, but it was because I knew what I'd, what had happened. I knew that it was just I'd lost my timing. Next ball didn't mm. worry me running up because I knew what had gone wrong. Also, yeah. we go back to bowling bad balls and batters. I think the bowl, the batter on Saturday that I got LBW thought I was going to bowl another bad ball. So we're sat mm. waiting for another bad ball. So if you actually use your, you can use your bad ball as a positive. It can set a batter mm. up as well. So um, just because it's a bad ball doesn't mean that it has to be a bad ball in your mind. Like if you end up dragging one down and the bowl, the batter thinks you've potentially tried to bowl a bouncer, mm. and then actually that you can use that in your advantage. You put another ball up on a length and then you catch them on the crease coming half forward. So yeah, there is. <laughs> What is a bad ball? It probably isn't any bad ball. You can use every ball that you bowl. And you might not yeah. intend it to go there, but you can, and the outcome might not be wanted, but you can use it to mm -hmm. a, try and find a positive way to look at it and go, actually, well, I didn't want to bowl a bouncer, but it ended up going short. The wicket's wet, so it was never going to get up anyway. But the batter mm -hmm. probably doesn't know I didn't mean to bowl it there, unless I apologise to everyone on the field and go, sorry, I didn't mean to do that. So, um, yeah, I think you can use bad balls yeah. to get people out. And bad balls take wickets as well, so... True, she gets biggest. Um, yeah, it's a. I think if I was my age again, knowing what I knew, I probably would have spent a lot more time working on running up properly and then working on some sort of SNC program to make sure I could handle the forces through back foot contact and be strong enough to maintain the positions you need to be in to bowl fast. I would probably work on flexibility as well because I was quite flexible when I was younger but you tend to get to an age where you suddenly just lose it all like it just disappears um, yeah, and I don't know if that's like a cross sport thing of not using it or playing different playing different sports you need different ranges of motion and you develop strength and muscle tensions in positions that I played football in goal so I took a lot of goal kicks so my hamstrings aren't very flexible but they're quite powerful in the range you need to kick a ball um, which doesn't really help when you're trying to keep your front leg straight because it goes out quite a lot when you bend your torso over. So I think mm -hmm. I, my knee flexion in my bowling action comes from my hamstring length, not anything really that technical because mm -hmm. I can keep my leg straight, but it hurts. So my brain knows it's going to hurt and prevents it from happening. So gotcha. I think there's a, there are other reasons to why people bend their front legs, not just technically. There's probably some physical aspects yeah, as definitely. well. Um, which again can be quite dangerous if you're going right today we're going to work on keeping your leg straight but your hamstring goes ping and we know also that yeah. hamstring injuries are like one of the set I thought are they the second most prevalent or they're definitely one of the highest soft tissue injuries in fast bowlers probably because you stretch mm. them to a silly length and then you go and try and sprint and they're probably working in two different areas or zones at the same time and you're like yeah yeah 
Um, so I think, yeah, I've, uh, I haven't really got a technical answer. I've, a couple of years ago, I'd have probably been really technically focused on alignment. That's the <laughs> one thing that I do have a lot. I make sure in my run-up that my run-up's aligned. So I mark it. I make sure I mark it so that my left foot starts very close to the umpire's shoulder, so I run in straight. Right. Um, obviously, move it if I'm bowling into a batting into a left-hander I'll come wider but um, I get side on so sometimes I can almost run up too straight which doesn't help as well and I end up can't get it at off stump I end up bowling it like a, a fourth set and pushing it away so again yeah. I know that that's another miss so I then bring my run up wider so um, yeah I think a lot of a lot of stuff that I would say to work on is understanding the links between your own technique and the outcomes um, mm. And then try and work on the ones you can improve. So alignment's easy to work on. You can just work in run up straighter. Run up technique should be easy to work on, but mm. you probably find that you'll default back to it under pressure unless you spend loads and loads of time on it. Um, and then probably work on skills and the. Up I think you can work on the upper half of stuff easier than the bottom half of the body in the run up, but or in the bowling action. But skills as well, I think, is crucial. There's no real excuse not to be able to keep the seam upright or wobble it or no. bowl a slower ball because it's ultimately mm. the same bowling action for all of them apart from wrist position. So um, mm. they're pretty easy wins, to be honest. Oh, well, I think we did pretty well there. For... Just rabbit it on <laughs> about myself for about 20 minutes. So that feels awful. <laughs> <laughs> I like how um... yeah, analyzing yeah, my just... bowling technique that was painful. Yeah, no, I think you did pretty well. <laughs> Oh uh, well, look, mate. I think we've um we've done pretty well so far. Um, I might let you get ready to go off and play golf. I can see you've already got the the shirt ready to go. Uh too old to be getting dressed twice on the same day. It hurts to bend over and put <laughs> socks on. Oh gosh. Oh gosh. <laughs>